Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Health Theory, or I should say today, welcome to a very special episode of Health Theory. Today, I'm gonna to be walking you through the daily routine that I've put together in my life after spending all of this incredible time with these amazing experts on Health Theory. This is a lifestyle that is designed to help me live as long as possible, maximize my cognition, lower my inflammation, and make sure that I can enjoy my day-to-day -day life to the max. So, all right, here we go. This is Health Theory in action. Okay, now that the blinds are opening, we can actually see something. So I keep my clothes right there next to my bed, keep headphones right next to my bed. That way I am ready to rock and roll as soon as I get out. First thing I do is put my headphones on. Uh, I start listening to a book or a YouTube video. Then I would come in, I would brush my teeth. Uh, again, I did all of this earlier because I didn't want to wake up Lisa, um, but just by way of recreation, that's it. Uh, so I would come in, brush my teeth, then I snatch up the dogs, feed them. Then as of right now anyway, it would be off to the gym. The key part of any morning routine is the order in which you do things. So for me, depending on what's going on in my life, I may prioritize the gym or I may prioritize meditation. But one of those two things is almost always going to come first. It's gonna be pretty rare that I don't do that. Now, as the time that we're recording this, we're going into the summer, so right now I'm really prioritizing the gym. Also coming off of the quarantine where I was maybe a little bit more lax, hyper-focused on the business, um, the gym was something that came a little bit later in the day. The problem is, depending on what your priorities are, and mine is definitely marriage first, then business, then physique, um, that if something crazy is going on in the business and you know I'm trying to get things done there, then whatever I haven't done first thing in the morning, it's possible that it just doesn't happen. So um, right now, because I'm really focused on the gym, even though my ultimate priority list hasn't changed, the reason I'm recording this now is because, as you guys know, I wake up so early that there was nobody to film me doing this stuff. But the way that I think about the gym right now, it's the first thing I do. So I wake up, I put my gym clothes on, I immediately beeline to the kitchen. If I'm completely honest, I feed the dogs and then I uh, drink a bit of water and then I head straight to the gym. Um, I do a pretty simple workout routine. I do a push, pull, legs and abs. So push, meaning I'm doing chest, and actually I do it in a different order. I do pull, then I do push, then I do legs and abs, then I repeat the cycle. So typically on a Monday, I'm gonna start with my back and my biceps, which are the pull motions. And I do that because historically I have had a, my back has been weaker than the rest of my body. So I'm prone to getting injured if I don't really take care of focusing on my back and my core. When I do that, then I can avoid injury. When I don't, then I run into problems. And this is one of those guys from a health theory perspective. You're going to have injuries, like let's take the lower back. And you're gonna think that, well, I couldn't work out or I couldn't deadlift because I have lower back pain. Now, you need to seek somebody that can actually walk you through how to do this safely because deadlifts in particular can be a risky thing. But I promise you, 
that if you haven't at least explored that getting strong is the answer to your pain, that working out, even though it seems like the riskiest thing you could do, is actually the thing that's gonna solve your problem, then you haven't even begun to explore potential remedies. So many of the problems that people have are not from working out, they are from working out in a way that creates muscular imbalances or where you're just not working out enough to get strong. I have a hypothesis, it's a hypothesis, I could be wrong, but man, in my own life, I am so arrogant about the following thought. If you have lower back pain, it is for exactly two reasons. Reason number one, your diet. It's an inflammation problem. Change your diet and suddenly back pain reduces so dramatically. This is from experience. Number two, you're just not deadlifting enough. You've gotta get your legs, your glutes, and your lower back strong, and of course there's the echo, so then your abs better be strong. So you've gotta get that whole chain of things strong. Every time my back is hurt, one of two things or both have been true. My diet has been off point, so let's say it's the holiday season, I'm going a little bit crazy, all of a sudden I'll notice, whoa, I have pain in my lower back, but it feels like nerve pain, so I'm like, what is going on? And then number two, I haven't been deadlifting. When I am religious about my diet and I am religious about deadlifting, my lower back pain is exactly zero. So as somebody who has experienced lower back pain that doesn't feel diet related, it doesn't feel related to working out, in fact, it feels dangerous to bend over and pick things up. So I'm like, whoa, what's going on? Maybe I'm just getting older, whatever. And the punchline every single time to unwind that has been get my diet on point, low inflammation meaning I'm eating whole foods, which we'll cover in the diet section, and then to deadlift consistently. Now, personally, I deadlift, brace yourselves, five days a week. It's gonna be way controversial. So let me tell you how I do it and why I do it. So first of all, I'm deadlifting lightweight, high rep, always. I never, I used to focus on low rep, heavy, and it felt awesome, it was so cool. I don't do it anymore. Uh, I'm worried about just from a longevity standpoint. That just could be because I'm not doing it well. I'm super open to that reality. But now what I've realized works extraordinarily well for me is low weight, high rep. Um, and I do a single set three days a week. And I do two days a week where I do multiple three to four sets. Um, so that I have found works incredibly well. And when I reduce that to say three days a week, which I've tried, I just find every now and then I'll feel a little twinge in my lower back. Something to explore. Okay, so let's finish going through the pull, push, legs, abs. So on the pull day, I'm doing things from my back, I'm doing things from my biceps, anything that's a pull. Now I separate my legs, so you could certainly say that your hamstrings are a pull, because they are, uh, but I isolate that to leg day just to make sure that I give my back proper time. I do four exercises to one back to by. So I do a lot of back exercises because I found if I'm trying to strengthen my biceps, which look cool, but if I'm focused on that, I end up hurting my traps or my scalenes. So by focusing on my back, my back, my back, especially my mid-back, keeping that strong, then I can work out my biceps. But if I just focus on my biceps, I end up getting injured or just really tight, really uncomfortable. So that's really important. Then on push days, I'm doing chest, I'm doing triceps, I'm doing shoulders. And by grouping those up, 
you're taking advantage of the compound movements. So when you're working your back, you're also working your biceps. When you're working your chest, you're also working your triceps and your shoulders. So by grouping those up, you're hitting them really comprehensively on that day. And then legs obviously speak for themselves. So I'm doing quads, I'm doing hamstrings, I'm doing calves, and I'm doing abs on that day. Uh, not everybody groups them like that, but that's been very easy for me to remember sort of where I'm at in my cycle, to make sure that I'm hitting everything. And of course, within those days, I will vary the exercises that I do from day to day. But, you know, so for the back, you have, you know, a dozen or whatever different exercises that you're gonna rock through. Same for my push day, same for my leg day. Although if I'm honest, I'm far less varied on my leg day. Keep that pretty basic. Um, but by doing that, you're making sure that you're hitting all the different little muscles in different ways so that you don't get prone to a muscular imbalance, which I've struggled with uh, pretty profoundly. Partly just out of laziness, because I like to do very simple things over and over and over, so I don't have to reinvent the wheel every day. Um, but yeah, that's my workout routine. I've stayed on that routine, which explains why I don't look like a bodybuilder, but I've been on that routine now for 10 years. Now, I will say that is not optimal. I'm just saying for my lifestyle, where that falls lower in my priority list, that's been a great way to make sure that I maintain, I show up, I put in the work, um, and I'm consistent. And as they say, the workout that you do, even if it's a little wonky, is better than the perfect workout that you don't do. So that is my gym routine. Meditation is one of the most important things that I've added to my daily routine. I'm not joking when I say that, I always say it saved my life. That's probably a bit of hyperbole, but whoa, did it keep me from getting myself into real emotional trouble in the hardest periods of my life, in the most stressful, where there was the most on the line. It was so comforting to know that I was never more than 45 minutes away from total equanimity and the only way for me to achieve that is through meditation. So meditation is a critical part of my daily practice. It is really simple. So I do what's called just breathe meditation. So I'm gonna take my shoes off here. Any couch will do, anything that's comfortable, any chair, wherever you're gonna be comfy. And I sit just in a nice, simple, cross-legged style in a position that I think I can maintain. Usually I can maintain sitting like this for about 20 to 30 minutes before my feet start going numb. Uh, and I found, for whatever reason, that when I touch my hands together, that it creates this sense of like the, the energy looping. I don't know, that feels so silly to say, but it was one where I started out doing this and then I just found myself wanting to do this, to rest my hands, not interlace or anything, just really simply in my lap. I sit comfortably, I don't over try to, you know, um, have like really strict posture. I actually find the more I sit up, the harder it is to breathe from my diaphragm. So I have a slight curve to my spine. I sit super comfortably and then I just breathe. Now, the key thing for me is these bad boys. So I'm not sponsored by a headphone company, but having the headphones over my ears that really blocks everything out I listen to the sounds of nature. So I'll either do, uh, if it's a rainy day outside, I'll do a thunderstorm. If it's a nice day outside, I'll do the sound of waves crashing. If it's really early, and so I sort of get a pick what kind of day, I'll usually do a thunderstorm. There's something about the thunderstorm that I find 
really locks me in. And I think it's because the actual sound of the thunder comes at random intervals. And so that reminds me to be really present with my breath, to not let my mind wander or start thinking about things. You're really just trying to breathe. Um, I do a simple four-part cycle that I learned from Mark Devine. Um, I do it differently than he does. What he does is a four equal parts breath. So you do an inhale, an inhale hold, an exhale, and an exhale hold. And I found that by trying to make those four equal parts, which is known as box breathing, um, that I felt a little out of breath, which was not making me relax. And so finally I just said, what if I tried to maximize the pleasure of each part of the cycle? So I would hold the inhale hold, for instance, for only as long as it felt good. I would exhale in a way that felt good. So for me, it's just a, a release. I don't try to time it or prolong it. Um, and then I found for whatever reason, the exhale hold was actually the most pleasurable part of the cycle. So on the inhale, I might only hold, I don't know, four seconds, three or four seconds. It's really quite brief. But on the exhale, I found myself holding for 10, 15 seconds. And again, I would just start breathing again the moment it stopped being pleasurable to hold that exhale. And by doing that, and so the, the length of time may vary as I'm doing the meditation, but by doing that and really being conscious to maximize the pleasure of each part of the breath cycle, then I'm not, my mind isn't wandering. I'm there with my breath. I'm there with the pleasure of just breathing. And by doing that, um, sometimes if my mind is really going crazy, it might take me you know, five or 10 minutes to get into a zone. When I first started and my life was incredibly stressful, like I said, it could take up to 45 minutes for me to finally get lost in my breath. Um, but the fact that I knew that if I just sat there long enough uh, doing that, just bringing my thoughts back to the breath, every time they would wander back to the breath, back to the breath, nothing complicated about it, um, that I was good. And that has been transformative and is a big part of why uh, I meditate every day, five days a week, let me not lie. Uh, I'd only meditate on the weekends if I was really in a stressful situation. Um, but it's really a game changer. So I put the headphones on. I use Calm the app again. I'm not sponsored or anything by them. It's just what I use. And I make my selection and then I meditate. And so I'll let you guys see what a quick cycle looks like. And uh, we'll take it from there. everybody one of the most important things that you were ever going to do in your routine is to get your diet right I think that this outside of having a loving relationship with my wife I think my diet is the most important thing that I do and focusing on loving relationships diet and sleep like those are gonna be your top three things so getting your food right is critically important because um, this is the easiest way for me to anchor people around why diet is so important. So first of all, you literally are what you eat. Literally, at a cellular level, you are made of the things that you consume. So every cell in your body is from something that you ate. So let that one sink in. Um, and then on top of that, the largest nerve in your body known as the vagus nerve, 85% of the signals 
traveling on that nerve are from your body to your brain, not your brain to your body. So we all have this illusion that we are this consciousness that controls everything, when in reality, the two work in concert and that the vast majority of the signaling is coming from the body. So your microbiome is a huge thing. And when you dysregulate your microbiome by eating things that cause disruption, then you're now getting all these signals that your brain is forced to interpret. Okay, this is one of the, read Lisa Feldman Barrett's book, How Emotions Are Made. All of the things that you feel, whether it's happiness, sad, um, anger, frustration, hopelessness, all of that stuff, is your brain interpreting the signals that it's getting from your body, from the outside world. And once you understand that emotions come from the body first, and then your brain goes, hey, the last time that I got these sensations from all over my body, what did that mean? And then your body or your brain, excuse me, assigns a story to that feeling. And now all of a sudden, when you have a dysregulated microbiome and the microbiome is crying out for this, that, or the other, all of a sudden your brain adds a story. And I'll give you an easy one, anxiety. In my own life, I will tell you that I've struggled profoundly with anxiety only to at first think this is entirely in my head and then finally to realize, no, 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 this is largely, how largely? This is again a hypothesis, but I have a gut instinct that this is, anxiety is probably 90% your diet and then 10% what you're thinking about. Meaning, what you think about is stepping on the gas. But if there's no gas in the gas tank, then you're not gonna go anywhere. And by dysregulating your microbiome through the things that you eat, you put gas in the gas tank of anxiety and then your thoughts step on it, boom, there's plenty of gas and now you're off to the races. So I'm not saying that your thoughts aren't important or what's going on in your life isn't important to triggering anxiety. I'm saying it won't escalate the way that it does if you are eating a diet that keeps your gut flora nice and happy. So that's something I think a lot about. Now we're filming this at just before 9 a.m. and I'm still in a fasted state. So that's a really important part for me in terms of how I live my life is I intermittent fast every day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, even on Christmas, I'm gonna intermittent fast. That's the one thing that for me I've found is so profoundly impactful. It's one of those that, oh my God, would there have to be some compelling science that would make me move away from how it makes me feel, how it allows me to maintain my body composition, and how, like, I actually discovered how profoundly impactful intermittent fasting is during Christmas. Because I found that if I woke up, because during Christmas I can eat whatever the hell I want, I'd let myself totally go crazy. And I found that I would get an upset stomach if I didn't leave big gaps in between when I ate. But if I left big gaps, I could actually get away with eating cake, cookies, ice cream, chips, literally whatever I wanted. But I had to leave, say, 18 hours gap between my feeding window or I, you know, eating in a, what would that be, a six hour feeding window. So as long as I left 18 hour gaps between when I was eating, then I was a-okay and it was absolutely wonderful. So I average probably about 17 and a half hours a day, seven days a week uh, between my feeding windows. I might shorten that a little bit on the weekends, but you're still looking at something north of 14 or 15 hours um, on the weekend. So that truly 
that lets you know that some days I'm doing 19, 20 hour windows um, so that over the week it averages out to about 17 and a half hours and that's year round. Um, that's really impactful. Now my diet itself, I eat, in fact, let's see if we can just take a peek into the, yeah, this will give you a pretty good idea of exactly uh, what things look like. So irony of ironies, I won't, I won't uh, put them on blast, but I used to drink uh, a lot of diet sodas. And what I found was that that was, I can literally correlate that to my anxiety. So even though I have some in the fridge, I might have five in a year. So very, very rarely do I have that. My mainstay is eggs. I eat a lot, a lot of eggs. I eat a lot of um, butcher box. So those full disclosure, I am sponsored by butcher box. But let me tell you, I've had a relationship with those guys for a long time because of the grass fed, um, grass finished nature of their meats. Um, I would not have believed that that matters 10 years ago until Lisa went through what she went through with her dysbiosis, which ended up putting our lives on hold for a year. It was absolute insanity. Um, and so seeing how all the things we had to learn and do to get her back on track, I realized that what your food ate really does matter. So you have to be really thoughtful about that. So I eat a lot of eggs. That's definitely my mainstay. I eat a lot of beef, but all grass-fed, grass-finished. Um, Wild-caught salmon, I eat a lot of sardines. Um, that is, that's my mainstay from a meat perspective. And then I'm eating a lot of green leafy vegetables, kale, bok choy is a personal favorite, collard greens, um, green beans, asparagus, um, if I'm out, I'll do broccoli, but I almost never cook broccoli for myself, even I'm not sure why. Uh, but that is, oh, and carrots. I eat a lot of carrots. Um, whether that's good or bad, I'm actually not sure, but I will say that it, it cures my sweet tooth. So my big thesis with food is whole food only. So Monday through Friday, I don't eat anything that I can't recognize from its natural state. So I'm eating my eggs, I'm eating my meat, I'm eating my vegetables, um, all in like their actual vegetable state. So my bok choy still looks like bok choy. It's like all bunched together. I literally rinse it off, I cut that shit, and then I put it into a frying pan with a little bit of extra virgin olive oil. Um, and then on the weekends, I'll be a little bit more lenient and I'll have some things that are processed foods that are hyper palatable, ultra delicious, but I have to be careful because I don't want to dysregulate my microbiome because it then propels my anxiety. And as somebody that struggled with anxiety and now realizing how much of a diet connection there is, I find that by eating whole foods as much as, not humanly possible, because of course I could be on a pure whole food diet, um, but I find that on the weekends, it's fun to be a little more flexible. Um, but yeah, during the week, I don't have anything that I don't recognize, but even like something like a nut, um, I won't have much of that during the week. Now, it may just be that I have a particular sensitivity to nuts. Um, it may be that over the years, because of all the different um, diet things that I did, when I was younger and didn't know anything, didn't even know the microbiome existed and then taking antibiotics that I just created enough dysregulation in my microbiome that I am now sensitive to them. But I find that that's not perfect. 
Um, if I'm absolutely dying during the week for like a quick little snack, I might have a handful of almonds, which seem to be the thing that I can get away with the most. Um, but for the most part, it is just literally meat, eggs, vegetables. And that is the sum total of my diet. Oh my God, I eat a lot of avocados, a lot of avocados. I keep my fruit intake to a minimum. I do have some fruit during the week and some berries, especially on the weekends. That's sort of my big treat. Uh, the reason I do that, even though there's fiber intake and all that, I wore a continuous glucose monitor for about six months and fruit, even though it has um, the fiber in it, it still does spike my glucose. Not crazy like candy would, but it does spike it and it spikes it pretty significantly. So um, for the most part, I save that for when I'm um, what I call cheating. Uh, so I know that people are gonna get up in arms about me calling fruit cheating, but I will just say, if body composition is something that you're thinking about, if managing your glucose levels is something that you think about, um, if not spiking insulin, because you might still even be able to regulate your blood sugar, but you could be spiking your insulin more um, than is necessary. Uh, if that's something that you care about, then I would be very thoughtful about your fruit intake. Everybody is different. So I would highly encourage you guys to wear a continuous glucose monitor so you can see what affects you in what way. All right, that's my diet when I break fast, which I will probably do about 9.30 today uh, because I eat my last meal. This is gonna freak some people out. I eat my last meal at 1.30 p.m. So my window today will be from about 9.30 to 1.30 and then I eat literally nothing except water is the only thing that I will intake. In fact, we should talk about caffeine. You guys ready for the way that I approach drinking? Because this is gonna be something that I think a lot of people are tripped out by. Um, so I eat in that narrow window. I have my last meal at 1.30. So I'm, I'm hard to invite to dinner. Uh, and then I stop drinking caffeine at 1 p.m. And I stop drinking water in any meaningful quantity at 2 p.m. Now I find if I do that, I sleep through the night. If I drink later than that, then in any sort of meaningful amount, then I'll wake up in the middle of the night and need to pee. And then once I'm awake, it's much harder for me to fall back asleep. So um, that's something that I use to manage uh, my sleep. I drink mostly carbonated water. I find that it fills me up. Um, I won't be too surprised if somebody comes out with a study at some point though that that's problematic. Um, so I'm just sort of holding my breath waiting for that. But as of right now, I feel good. Um, when I drink it, I don't uh, experience any problems that I recognize, how about that? So that, and then I have, I do have a little bit of caffeine. So um, what I do is I mix, this is really gonna trip people out. I mix these two things. Again, I'm not sponsored by any, any of these people. Uh, this is just what I do. So uh, nitro coffee, caveman coffee, it's, I think, three espresso shots in one can. So what I do is I save another can so that I always have two cans going and I pour out a third into an empty can and then I pour a third out, I know, but I pour a third out. So in each can, I only have a single shot and because coffee can mold, I don't want to um, leave it too long because it'll take me a day to a day and a half to drink one of the espresso shots because I mix it with sparkling water. Now, at first it was weird. Now I'm so used to it. When my coffee doesn't sparkle, I am sort of taken aback. 
Um, and yeah, that's it. And so as I sip on this, I'll add water back in um, until I've probably diluted about one and a half cans of water to the uh, one espresso shot. And I just nurse it throughout the day. And again, I stop, I don't intake caffeine after 1 p.m. After one, from one to two, then I'm going just on the sparkling water. Um, and that's it. That, that is my beverage routine. I don't drink alcohol unless it's like a special occasion, um, just because it's so pro-inflammatory and not even like pro-inflammatory in an abstract way, like it makes my joints hurt. Um, so as much fun as it is, I really limit my alcohol intake to probably four or five times a year. Um, and, and that's it. So water, little bit of caffeine, and we out. Okay, any routine, whether it's morning, your full day, it all starts the night before. Getting a good night's sleep, I cannot stress this enough. As somebody who absolutely resents needing to sleep, it's still the number one thing that I prioritize. So that is critical that you prep for that. So number one, I start wearing blue blocking glasses at least three hours before bedtime. I actually use a little device that zaps me, but I'll save that for another video since I'm on the board, the advisory board of that company. Um, but I do everything that I can to make sure that I sleep optimally, including cooling the room down, um, to very chilly. So we sleep with our room at 68 degrees and that way you can snuggle up in your blankies and there's something about when your body temperature drops that triggers you to get sleepy. Um, so getting the room nice and cool is another uh, big tip. I go to bed at 9 p.m. every night like it is a religion. I should say Sunday through Thursday night, I go to bed at 9 p.m. I allow a little bit later bedtime on Friday, a little bit later bedtime on Saturday. But other than that, 9 p.m. And I don't set an alarm ever unless I have like a super early flight or something like that. Um, and I've been doing that for like 17 years now or something like that. So I built multiple successful companies without setting an alarm. So trust me, it is possible. Now, the reason I do it is so that I'm optimizing my cognition, get as much sleep as I need. Um, so for me, that's about seven and a half hours, probably on average. I sleep with headphones right next to my bed. In fact, as you can see, they are right here. And I do that because I oftentimes wake up in the middle of the night, put these bad boys in, and I can fall right back to sleep and listen to a book, very, very low volume, so that just so that if I put a tiny bit of pressure on my ear, that I can hear it, and then that way as I roll around, it will come ever so slightly out, and then I just fall asleep and I forget that the book is there. So that was a game changer for me. I don't know if that'll be as useful for anybody else, but I used to lie in bed for hours in the middle of the night, trying to fall back asleep. This has been a game changer. And that's it. I sleep in nice, loose clothing. Um, Mouth tape. Oh, yes. So here it is. I'm so glad that you reminded me of that. This is why my wife is here filming it. I tape my mouth closed every night. Uh, I did an episode with James Nestor. You should check that episode out. He talks about um, breathing through your nose and how important it is. So I literally take my mouth closed. That also significantly improved my sleep. So I wouldn't have believed it until I tried it. So now literally every night I kiss my wife, I tell her I love her, and then I put tape 
over my lips. A single piece, about that long, and I just put it over my mouth. Shall we? And this yeah. will be my goodbye. All right, here we go. Take, this is just uh, medical tape, first aid tape. Looks like uh, 1.5 centimeters. And I do a piece about that long. Mm -hmm. That's it. I tell my wife I love her and I love you, baby. Love you, baby. And then I tape up. Tape up. So, all right, guys, until next time, be legendary. Take care. <laughs>